All right, I'm Sarah, focused on Russian foreign policy, migration, and things like that. I'm Matt, I'm focused on Southern African history, politics, and economics in general. I'm Corey, focused on Central Asia, the Caucasus, security policy. We're three friends who met in grad school who decided to turn our WhatsApp group chat into a podcast called Spicy World. We also invite friends with fresh views to talk about policy, history, international affairs, and current events. So this week we have Mohamed Tagazi, and he is a transportation entrepreneur, maybe maybe I would call him, or uh, a researcher of of uh, transportation and, and cities. And uh, he's based in Cairo, and uh, we met when we were in grad school. He was at Sciences Po, and we were at SIPA. And today we're going to talk about Cairo, and maybe we're going to talk about other cities around the world. So, welcome, Hugazi. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Is that how you would describe yourself, a, trans- a transportation entrepreneur or a researcher? What do you, how do you think of yourself? So, I usually use two a little bit conflicting terms. Policy mm-hmm. entrepreneur on the one side, and applied urban informatics on the other side. So we really work in the public policy domain. We really look at transportation from the top-down view of how is it regulated, how is it managed, how is it uh, incentivized by the state, how can we change the sector as a whole, and to achieve wider societal goals. Like for me, transportation is not just about moving from A to B. It's also about its environmental, social, uh, economic, and health impacts. And Mm -hmm. this is where we really use a tech approach to our work. This is the applied urban informatics. Uh, I specialize in the collection of data, its analysis, and really the instrumentalization of data-based consulting and decision-making to be able to understand, propose better solutions on the policy level. And this is all the more important in Africa, which is where the majority of our work takes place. Like uh, Transport for Cairo, TFC is based in Cairo. We work a lot here in Egypt locally, but also in other contexts. We've worked in Uganda, Rwanda, uh, Ethiopia, you name it. And in these data poor contexts, you know, you arrive there and where do you start? So we work vertically, we collect data, we analyze it, we try to create like uh, series and um, data driven models, understand what's happening and only then start proposing solutions on the policy level. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, data poor environments. Can you talk a bit more about the products that you produce. So I know in Cairo that you had this really interesting uh, mapping project that you worked on for, I think it was years that you were working on it and maybe you're still working on it. And how come there, maybe you could talk about the history and why that was necessary. Why didn't that exist you know, a few years ago? Why, did, why were you the person that had to come along and create that? So, like many stories, you know, the story starts in New York, basically. 
Like, <laughs> if, if you look at New York, you look at the subway map, it's very emblematic. It's a, it's a very powerful symbol of the city. Everybody knows the New York subway map. And it represents how you move around the city. Now, New York is a developed city and an industrialized country, and it has a relatively formal system. It has like the subway, the MTA operates buses, so they take charge of this mapping operation. But you also have dollar vans in New York, dollar vans that you can take across the Brooklyn Bridge, for instance. And they're generally used by people of lower income because they're cheaper than the MTA buses and also because of social reasons. And these are invisible. Now, when you come to Africa, to a lot of countries and contexts uh, uh, here in Africa, you will find that the transport system is invisible because it is dominated by the equivalent of dollar vans, uh, informal modes of transportation. The term we like to use is paratransit, uh, creates a little bit of conflict with the North American understanding. You know, it's not dial a ride. It's paratransit in Africa really refers to uh, you have driver owners or even fleet owners of 14-seater um, vans, and these are the backbone of the public transport system. Uh-huh. And getting back to New York, uh, in the early 2010s, there was this research project that started in Columbia University, partnership with MIT and the University of Nairobi and uh, Groupshop, an American design firm. And they went to Nairobi, and mapped the Matatus over there, the informal transport system of Nairobi. And they created data that they put on Google Maps, so suddenly had routing. And they also created like this beautiful visualized schematic map, similar to the New York subway map, but of the informal buses. This was an inspiration for us. Hey, why don't we do that for Cairo? Uh, Hint, city is six times as big as Nairobi. That's a pretty bad reason. And yeah, that's why it took us like three years to do this data collection, uh, aggregate it into one place, into this big massive database, and really create the visual representation thereof in the end, the map. Mm. And the core is it's really a database much more than a map that we then use to understand the system, to decipher it, to learn more about it, and then to start proactively saying, hey, how do we fix it? How do we improve it? And we've done that not just in Cairo, but also in Addis Ababa. In uh, currently, we've done a big one for Kampala, in Uganda, mm-hmm. and that one over there is really interesting, because for the first time, we started taking our data collection a step further, and look at the boda bodas. So mm-hmm. boda bodas are motorcycle taxis. Mm-hmm. These are they really at the border of what a public transport system is. When you have 200, an estimated 200,000 of them in a city of 3 million people, that means like one boda for every 12 citizens or so. Uh, that's a system. You can't mm-hmm. ignore it. And this is really the core of the policy dimension of our work. It's, these systems are so massive. Literally half of the world's population between Asia, Latin America, Eastern Europe and Africa relies on it every day to get to work, to get to where they need to be. And we can't just ignore it. We need to learn about it. We need to integrate it in how we approach transportation. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us, how do you go about 
mapping this or creating this uh, database, what does that process look like? Why does it take three years and, and how do you do it? Uh, so you can do it in three weeks if you want to. It's oh, just okay. always a function of money like many other things. <laughs> but yeah, like the process is quite simple at its core. Um, you get a mobile phone. This is the amazing technology of smartphones nowadays. Any smartphone with an app can, you can just, uh, can trace the routes of these buses. You write them, you use the phone to trace where you start from, where you go. And then you get all of these traces together in a big database. Mm -hmm. In reality, we started by really professionalizing the art and science of mapping it. Uh, what is a route? Uh, how many routes are there in a city? And normally they're in the hundreds. Like in Cairo, we identified 800 unique routes with directionality. And we know that this is not even the full system because mm -hmm. we, put a, uh, we put a threshold of 14 seaters and there are a ton of smaller vehicles roaming the streets. And then there is the science of really managing the scale of the number of these routes, the number of people riding them. It's a very manual process as well. Like we really rely on people getting on the buses and people giving us their professional assessment of the service. And then you get also a lot of qualitative knowledge that's really important to understand and decipher the quantitative side of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting because I feel like um, when we discuss these issues, there's always such a focus on the quantitative side of it. And so I'm kind of, uh, I'm happy that you bring up the qualitative side of it. Oh, for sure. Let me give you an example. In New York and Manhattan, it's a very easy to understand system. You have like crosstown buses, you have 14th Street, 125. And these buses, like they start on the eastern side, they go to the west, and then they take a tour back. It's very easy. Now, to use formal uh, transportation lingo, if the bus deviates, it would have like a service deviation. In one of our data collections, we always ask our field researchers to leave qualitative comments when they see something unusual happen. Mm. So my favorite one, and uh, this happened actually very close to where I live, is the microbus drove all passengers and everybody got off, except our field researcher, because <laughs> they are instructed to get from the origin to the terminus. You know, they're the ones who take the best seat in the bus because they're the first on and they're the last off. So the driver looks back and is like, you really wanna go to the terminus? Yes, I need to. All right, sure, we'll just make a quick detour. <laughs> and then he leaves, like literally the comment says, he leaves the main road. I want you to imagine like 125. He goes deep into Harlem. He goes, or not Harlem, it's, it's different. He goes deep into an informal um, neighborhood that's very close to the formal neighborhood with the main avenue, picks up a friend, they light a joint, they come back and drive our field researcher to the terminus. Joint in car, you know, they turn it into a riding hot box. And it's funny because this is a formal comment and in the end it lands like through the data processing, through the data analysis, way into the uh, final GIS, way into the open data that has been given to 
the government in the end. This is the reality <laughs> of the system. So it's not too different from New York. I could see something like that happening here, maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> and then you have like this question, do you call this like a route deviation or is this the informality side really coming up? But this is a funny example, you know, it has like some humor in it. It really, the nuance really extends because the core of a lot of these informal services are um, solutions to people's problems. Mm -hmm. One of the examples I really like, also in the same geographic area around where I live in Mohandesin in Cairo, you have citizens of the same informal neighborhood who rent one of these informal vans to act as a school bus once a day for their children. And it picks the children, drops them off at school, then turns into a publicly available public bus. Everybody can get on and get off. And then it gets privatized again to be a school bus to take the children back home. And it's reliable and it's consistent. And this is really the story of how a lot of these systems came to be. Like leaving Egypt and going to South Africa, the history of the industry there is particularly interesting because it's very much related to uh, apartheid and to how um, people like non-white people in South Africa, the black community used to move to access jobs during apartheid. Yeah. Can you, can we talk a little bit about how Cairo developed as a city in, in modern history and how that played into the informal transport network? Yeah, that's a very easy one to answer, Matt, isn't it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if you look at any city, you know, like the radius of a city, the size of the city is always related to the dominant mode of transportation. Because uh, how far can you get while still living in the city and moving around? Mm -hmm. And here Cairo is a very particular city because we're so old. Like the city has existed for thousands of years. Right. And also because it's so cosmopolitan because at all times did we have like these huge influences from east and west. So inside the city, if you look at it today, American Florida-style uh, neighborhood was called the Sachs. Check it exists. Uh, Middle Eastern uh, bazaars with super narrow alleyways. Check you've got that. European Housemanian-style neighborhoods with perfect arcs and six-story buildings. Got it. Uh, Soviet-style buildings. It's there. And this is really built around a really dense core that really goes upwards, vertical, because we have like this limited green space that we don't want to encroach upon, but we do. Mm. And because of the massive uh, demographic explosion in the 1950s onwards, because of also uh, the, the, the turbulent history of the country, the inability of the state to manage that, two thirds of the city live, of the citizens live in informal settlements surrounding this core. So we mm. have like the core in the middle, downtown, Zemalek. You have like the informal settlements forming basically a ring around it. 
like the ring road literally is a square and the informal settlements are mostly around that square outside. And then you move 20 kilometers in both directions and you have new urban communities. And this idea of the new urban community is the state doctrine since the uh, late 70s, uh, 80s particular. It's let's build in the desert. If we have so much empty desert land, let's conquer it, let's use it. It's too tempting to leave it unused. And we have 28 new urban communities in Egypt. 20, uh, eight of them are in the Greater Cairo metropolitan area. And number nine is currently under construction. This is the new administrative uh, capital, which is 50 kilometers to the east. Uh-huh. And these are American style cities, like the two urban communities to the west of the city are the size of the city. The six uh-huh. urban communities to the east of the city are the size of the city. So we basically tripled the size over the last three decades. <laughs> and it also really ties in with the country's history because we had this relatively wealthy, highly cosmopolitan country during the early 20th century, during the two world wars. Britain was deeply indebted to Egypt after the second world war. We were like a creditor back then. Mm. And also a relatively corrupted and highly feudal system, which led to during decolonization, like the 1952 revolution, and then the state uh, overtake, like the nationalization of industry, of private enterprise, and the state just getting into all sides of economic and social life. And this includes urbanism. And then in the 60s, this was still working, and then it broke down because we got like the demographic explosion at the same time of... uh, having multiple conflicts with uh, like military conflicts mm-hmm. in the region. And then the state was focused on the, on the wars. Mm. And then the informal settlements came up. Mm-hmm. And in the late 70s, when Jimmy Carter was in power, is the time when Egypt started opening up to the world again. We had this period of infiteh, or basically the shift from a socialist state-dominated economy to a market economy. And the state retreated even further from the provision of services and tried to create like a new capitalist class to start working in a market economy way. And this included not only the liberalization of construction, the informal settlements, but also the liberalization of public transport. We had a tram system in the late 19th, uh, in the late 19th century. We were one of the first cities like right on par with London and New York. And we had formal bus operators, like diesel buses started operating in Egypt equally early. And then the system slowly decayed, decayed, decayed. And in the 1980s, this is when informal transport really started taking over because it's an easy way to create a capitalist class. Hmm. You need relatively little amount of capital to go and buy a van and you start operating and you have a business, and you can scale that, and you have 10,000 businesses. And this is how the industry really got started. And then you get periodic external shocks, you know, like IMF structural adjustment, 
million citizens leave uh, their cussy jobs in the government. Uh, a lot of them have like two or three years uh, of severance pay. So you suddenly have some capital in your hand and you need to start using it. A lot of them bought stores and uh, also a lot of them started entering into informal transport. Hmm. And then you have the same repeating again with the Gulf War. A lot of people, workers in the Gulf, returning with some capital, and then suddenly they need to use it, and the city is growing like crazy. And then they start entering the sector. And this really coincides also with um, the labor intensity of the sector. Like for me, one of the interesting parts is after the 2011 revolution, you started to see a shift towards uh, smaller vehicles. So when you have a seven-seater van instead of a 14-seater van, it also means that you have a more labor-intensive system, a less efficient system. But then again, this is the core of any informal transport system. It's never about moving people from A to B as much as it is about employment. It's an employment generator before it is a transport system. Thanks for going into that. I know it was a big question, but I had heard you talk about it before, so I knew you could handle it. <laughs> <laughs> what neighborhood do you live in, in in Cairo? Not that I know very many of them, but I know like one or two. Well, uh, I live in Mohandesin. Nope, not, not one of them. sure if you know that, but you do know Zamalek. Yeah, I know Zamalek. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Everybody does. Every white, every white guy in, uh, in Cairo knows that. <laughs> Lala Zamalek. The funny part is, uh, our president in the seventies was like, "We're going to make out of Zamalek the Manhattan of Cairo," and it's like an <laughs> island, and it's like very rectangular, so it looks a little bit like Manhattan, until you come to New York and you realize, ah, you can fit the entire island in Central Park, and it would still be smaller, and uh, that's our Manhattan. Yeah, but. So when we were there, that's where we stayed in Cairo. There's apparently a million people on Zamalek Island during a day. A million people on the island? Yeah, in, in the daytime. In wow. the daytime. Um, I don't know, but I can check. <laughs> well, yeah, let me know. Yeah, I mean, that's what my buddy who's, who's been living there, he said, yeah, you wouldn't believe it. A million people live and work on that on that small island during the day. And like half of it's like a that country club, right? Half of it is the country club, exactly, Gazira. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, let me check after the call, actually. Like, we have an estimation of how many people actually live in Zamalek. Officially, it's like 30,000. Practically, it's multitudes of that, but that's okay. And uh, it's definitely one of the major business districts in the city. And uh, yeah, I just live across the Nile two kilometers away, like it's 10 minutes by bicycle from my place to Zamalek. All right. Hey, would you would you do us a favor? Because I, I, I found it fascinating and I know the gist of the story, but I wouldn't be able to do the story any justice at all. But could you explain the situation about rent control in Cairo? Because I think that's a fascinating story that everyone would enjoy hearing about, no matter who they are. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so, if, if you like, look, go back to the history of Egypt, you know, we were a very cosmopolitan country very early on, a little bit of this weird mix between uh, laissez-faire capitalism under the king, you know, in the 1920s, 30s, and uh, a feudal society. Uh, 
but you had in in these big cities you had like you really had a vibrant economy going on basically and then the country got uh, we had like this revolution in 1952 the king got deposed industry got nationalized and we went to our own version in socialism and then rent control was instituted and then suddenly you had the prices completely freezing the egyptian pound which was more powerful than the british pound actually one egyptian pound was more valuable than an ounce of gold and it completely ah. depreciated and rent stayed fixed and like nominally fixed in absolute numbers so you have situations where you have like a super fancy flat that's easily 300,000 dollars um, worth today and you're paying maybe 50 US dollars uh, in rent monthly 50 cents 50 US cents whoa because that was the rate 60 years ago and the rent control was imposed and you can actually inherit the rent from your family so everybody does that of course so it also leads to some pretty interesting you know like interbuilding uh, social stratification where you have some very wealthy residents living next to some very very poor residents who are just like the children and grandchildren of people who lived there before that's crazy that's really interesting i i was yeah. when when we were there we were told like in the building that my friend lives in like the original person like whoever owns it hasn't been in Egypt for like 80 years like their family right they 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 left at some point uh like maybe they were greek or something right like they left at some point in the 50s or 60s or 70s but whoever started renting it you know has been renting it for yeah like you know like you know 10 a year or something like that forever and just turns around and re-rents it sub-rents it for like you know $3000 a month <laughs> and you can't uh, get rid of the original lease and this is like a touchy political subject you know like every couple of years especially now uh, parliament starts to debate a law to repeal the old rent laws etc but it never goes anywhere and uh, yeah basically everybody's just waiting for this old generation to die out so that they can get rid of the old rent so what are the implications of the makeup of of neighborhoods because of these rent laws because you mentioned that there's a huge diversity in in socioeconomic status in any particular neighborhood because of this does that play out into the makeup of the neighborhood at all so yeah social mix up of uh, neighborhoods so i told you that i lived like 2 kilometers from zamalek mohansin Now I'm calling you from my parents place you can hear like the birds uh, chirping and everything uh, I'm walking in a garden in the middle of the desert 30 kilometers to the east and that's uh, Sheikh Zayed it's one of these new urban communities and Sheikh Zayed is a mixed town you it's leaning towards upper middle class but there's a ton of social housing there's a ton of public housing and there are a lot of like really fancy and expensive gated communities like pool in every house kind of uh, affairs so here you have like the segregation by neighborhood really by block where some blocks are completely walled off gated community very uh, wealthy and some blocks are social housing open relatively dense 
But if so, this social mixity is actually quite normal in Egypt historically. If you go to Zemalek, it's the same. It's actually it's a very wealthy neighborhood. You have uh, the like really the old money of Egypt living there. Uh, all of, all of the billionaires in Egypt maintain a residence there, and a lot of upper middle class people. But you also have a ton of people who are still living on old rent laws, and not just that, like in, in, in one of the most poignant piece of uh, Egyptian literature is called the Yaqubian building. And it really takes a building in downtown as a metaphor for how all social classes and people from all walks of life live together in the same building. Like in the first couple of floors, you have the professionals uh, who are renting under the new law, which is normal uh, free market rent. And then you have like uh, the old uh, elderly people who used to uh, own land back in the day or have some inheritance money living in the middle floors and who are really like reminiscing over the old Egypt when the neighborhood was quite different. And then on the very top, on the rooftop, you have the Baweb or basically the doorman. And there can be multiple doorman with their families, uh, some of them who are not even working in the building, but just like renting sacks on the roof. And you have like the entire social strata in the in one building. Hmm. Amazing movie out of it as well. And Zemalik does this on a neighborhood level. And in the new developments, you just have the segregation on the block level. That's so interesting. Because I feel like that would never happen in a lot of other cities that I've been to. I feel like people like to separate particularly by class and that's really that's a really interesting dynamic yeah so it's 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 really also a function of egypt because this country is a very particular place when you look at its density we are one of the densest places in the world like uh, there's this amazing uh, research project it's called africa polis it's done mm -hmm. by the oecd and it identified that 45 out of the 50 most dense regions in Africa are urban agglomerations in Egypt. So we have the mm. entire continent, 44 countries, and a whole 90% of the most dense city areas are basically towns and villages and cities in Egypt. Like mm. a typical Egyptian village has eight-story buildings. And this is really a function of the country's geography. Like when you visited, uh, Corey, you probably took like a Nile cruise in Luxor, or at least like you saw this extreme contrast between the fertile Nile and the desert. And yeah. the reality is we have 100 million people living on 40,000 square kilometers, 4% of the land. That's like denser than the Netherlands. Yeah, I would say the thing that I noticed the most is like, yeah, if you look on a map, Egypt's this like kind of almost like trapezoidal or, or, or rectangular like corner thing on the northeast corner of Africa. But like 90% of that space is is not inhabitable land. And all the, there's a hundred million people who live in here and they all live on this like, like a couple of football fields to the east of the Nile and a couple of football fields to the west of the Nile, like, and then the whole length of it. But there's like a point where you're standing there where like you can look anywhere and see like, oh, it's really, really green right there. And then the green just stops because you're just a little bit too far away from the water. And when you look at the green in the Nile Delta, which is like this uh, small triangle at the very north between Cairo and the uh, Mediterranean Sea, you will see that it's completely dotted with like 
gray cancerous like slabs of concrete, which are basically Egypt cities and towns and villages all glowing, growing like uh, vertically upwards because agricultural land is just so scarce. And the historical implication of that is everybody is living on the same spot. Egyptian cities are very dense by design. And we did a study at TFC recently. And when we calculated the density of Greater Cairo, we saw like areas very close, like just a couple of kilometers north to Zamalek, the densest in Cairo, you easily have 300,000 uh, citizens living under one square kilometer. You have like crazy density. What would a city like New York be, just to give us some reference? Uh, I guess more in the range of 20 to 40,000 residents wow. per square kilometer. Uh, with maybe the densest neighborhoods having 50 to 60. Mm. And that's already pretty dense. Wow. Wow. <laughs> what do you what do you think of the uh, what do you think of the Cairo metro system compared to like other metro systems of the of, of like the same size cities that you could compare that? So maybe like Istanbul or something in China maybe. Ah, well, uh, yeah, the Cairo Metro. Uh, I used to use it every day before the pandemic. I guess now uh, it'll be a while before I start using it again. So Cairo's metro system is the densest metro system in the world. And this is really key to understanding it. Dense in terms of we have the biggest ridership per kilometer of track because we have such a relatively small system, like it's maybe 66 uh, kilometers is the entire network. And this compares to 440 in New York, uh, 400 plus in, uh, in uh, Beijing. And we have a lower ridership, but not that far for a network that's the fifth of the size. And this really shows it's really highly congested at levels that you don't see in any of the cities I've been to in uh, North America or Europe. I haven't really traveled uh, like even South Korea. The system doesn't go very far, but where it goes, it's absolutely dominant. And it's the only system that we're expanding in this country. Like a friend of mine did this research paper, amazing piece in 2015, and he found out that 93% of the capital investment in public transport nationwide took place in the Cairo Metro. Hmm. So I, wanted, I wanted to reflect on that for a moment. You have a country with 100 million people, 25 million of which live in the capital city. You build a metro for these 25 million people and it alone and only it takes 93% of everything you pay year in, year out. That leaves 7% to service the same 25 million people with other services, buses or walkways or whatever, and the rest of the nation in cities that are equally dense. Like our second biggest city, Alexandria, has a good 10 million people on its own. Mm -hmm. And this is really my criticism with the Cairo Metro. It's taking up too much resources that might be better allocated elsewhere. 
Don't mistake, don't take me wrong. I love it. I think it's very necessary. It's the main piece of public transportation I rely upon. But it's so capital incentive that the opportunity cost of investment in it is high, very, very high. This might be a uh, this might be a question we believe just depending on how 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 it goes. But like, how politicized is something like the metro? In a country that obviously is very political and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of things are probably touchy subjects about like who controls what and why does that person get to make that decision. But like with something as as broad and, and like public good as the metro, which is, is the metro, is it, is it nationalized or is it a private company? And like how politicized is it? Uh, I would say relatively apolitical, like really apolitical. Mm. So, it's um, operated, uh, by, okay, so it's built by a state institution, which is called the National Authority for Tunnels. And they are the main contractor who uh, tenders, like, the plans and then the construction projects and then gets them through to building. And then they get transferred to the Egyptian company for metro operations which is also a state-owned uh, enterprise, which operates them. Slowly, slowly, the sector is getting partly privatized in effective ways. Uh, like, for instance, now a portion of a new line will be operated by a French company and a public-private partnership with the Egyptian state uh, operator. And it's, 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 a, it's a developing model, slowly. Privatization is a very dirty word because of a lot of corruption in the mid-2000s in Egypt, locally. So we never use that term. But that's slowly happening. And either way, like the state operator, they get the job done. It's an effective, it's a reliable system. It gets you from point A to B. The basics are good. Outside of the basics, uh, you have a ton of problems and a ton of missed opportunities. And... The system is highly political when it comes to fares because mm. like rent, we talked about rent control at the beginning, <laughs> fares were fixed and they didn't change from the, mid, the early 2000s until the mid 2010s. So in the end, we had like a subway ticket that could take you anywhere on the system, maybe travel for 20, 30 miles for the equivalent of uh, 8 US cents. Mm. And nice. that's like the cheapest on the system. That was even cheaper than Mexico City. Huh. And then they hiked the prices, which was necessary. I, I think it was really necessary to fund the system a little bit. But when they hiked it, you had some people suddenly having to pay up to 400% uh, more oh, overnight. Wow. Hmm. And that's a big sticker shock. Yes, you can buy like a subscription that's like only 250% more expensive from a very low denominator. But still, you need to buy a subscription. So that's a high capital outlay. And in an economy with high informality, people never have that access to concentrated capital at, a, at one time. Mm -hmm. So as a, like the transition to the subscription model can be prohibitive. And this was a little bit clumsy. 
And this was a really political moment in the history of the system uh, where we actually, the state had to mobilize like security forces in the stations to prevent riots. Oh, wow. And the end result is a system that was one of the cheapest internationally, just got demoted to being the cheapest locally mm. because it's still so much cheaper than the informal system and the public bus system. Aside from that, uh, you had a lot of troubles, for instance, when they wanted to make the metro station in Zamalek, which is the rather wealthy central neighborhood that we talked about earlier. And this criticism really stemmed from uh, unspoken hush-hush class issue. And the criticism that was evident is, oh, the construction won't go well and uh, it will... Uh, uh, might like in threaten the valuable historical buildings of the neighborhood, etc. A risk was any big construction, but a manageable risk. And in the end, like there was like a very high level political decision to proceed with the construction and to supersede this uh, area of public consultation. And away from those two issues, fares and the expansion and really wealthy neighborhoods, I think that the metro is relatively uncontroversial. And this figure of the really high investment in it, the opportunity cost, is not really in the public domain. It's not really uh, perceived as such. Actually, it's perceived as the state modernizing the country. So you mentioned before about how you're not using the, the metro currently because of the pandemic. Do you have a best theory on what public transportation can look like in the coming maybe year or two, given the pandemic? Have you thought about that much? Uh, are you talking about here in Egypt? I guess just generally, if you have a specific one to Egypt, then I'd love to hear it. But, do you, but if you have any ideas for the world as well, let's hear it. Because, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's the same everywhere. Like, this pandemic is really hurting us. A lot of people are suffering. Mm -hmm. And out of this like, great challenge also springs an opportunity to shift to a more sustainable mode of transport. Um, I'm a big fan of public transport, but there is, no, there is no doubt putting a lot of people in a confined space for prolonged periods of time is not a good public health uh, experiment in the times of a pandemic. And... This is a real issue because how are we going to get out of the shock? Are we, everybody, is everybody going to move to cars to protect themselves, which is the rational reaction? It doesn't work. A city doesn't work like this. This is why you're seeing a lot of cities, a lot of countries really using this shock, this lockdown, to really start shifting towards active travel, towards more walking more cycling, mm -hmm. which is just as safe from a public health point of view, actually even safer than um, being stuck in a private car. And if you look at in, in Egypt, like you have this really interesting statistic. So we've all seen like in Europe and in North America, I think that in New York, the death rate has spiked 50% in the, over the last couple of months because of corona, uh, because of the coronavirus, 
or because mm. of uh, the lack of normal care due to the overloaded health system. Mm-hmm. And this is really the death toll of the uh, pandemic. It's much bigger than just the official count of uh, disease due to coronavirus. Mm-hmm. In Egypt, the figure that I heard from an MD friend of mine last week was negative 2%. Our death rate actually decreased. And there are two reasons for this. The first one is we're at a much earlier and milder phase of the corona pandemic. Uh, Like right now, we're registering in the area of 700, 800 cases daily, a far cry from what uh, Northern Europe or uh, New York witnessed. But also our death fatalities, uh, sorry, our road death fatalities are really down. We're a country that has tens of thousands of fatalities a year, one of the highest rates worldwide. And suddenly, this is massively down. Suddenly, you're seeing massive amounts of people cycling during the curfew that we have every night and to, to move around, but also to exercise. And I think that this is the real opportunity that we are seeing is to use this shock to redesign our systems to become more conducive to walking, to active travel, to cycling. We are seeing uh, electrification of the different transportation modes proceeding. And electrification mm-hmm. for me is not a Tesla, an electric car. Cool, but it's still a car, you know, it still has the same size. And in congested cities in Africa, Asia, or even Europe, it's very different from wider cities such as Atlanta or Houston. Even in New York, you don't have space. Uh, you have like e-scooters, Lime, etc. I don't take them seriously because you have electric bikes. Electric mm-hmm. bikes are the perfect form of micro-mobility. And they're like New York is the prime example. You see how they completely dominate uh, delivery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why shouldn't yeah. they also take a much bigger role of transport within cities? And this is the opportunity that I see. And it's also an opportunity to shift road space away from private cars to active travel, to have the segregation, to have like segregated bike lanes. To me, the bike lane of of the future is going to be the width of a car lane to fit three bikes side by side overtaking each other, Mm -hmm. not the current half a car uh, lane dimension. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Uh, Let's talk about climate change for a moment. Like, Mm -hmm. we're still living in an area of climate change. We're still living in a time where we need to react to that and mitigate. And if you look at Egypt, we have every country has like their own uh, set of promises. We're going to do this to combat climate change that we announced in Paris in 2015 and we renew every five years. Next time is going to be uh, like this year or now next year due to delays uh, and then in 2025, etc. And the Egyptian promises were we're going to build the Cairo Metro because it's electric and very dense form of public transport and we're going to do like uh, another project. We're actually right now bidding for a project with uh, potential support from Germany to try and put active travel as the third commitment. Why shouldn't Egypt commit to having maybe two, then five, then 10% of transport within cities take place using walking, cycling, 
and uh, electric cycling as it becomes more common mm -hmm. to fund climate change. Why shouldn't this be a project where we fund a billion dollars because it gets us the equivalent of five billion dollars back in terms of uh, saved emissions? This is really the direction that we are taking as uh, TFC and that we're like standing fully behind. Mm. What does what does that mean for the informal public transportation routes, though? Uh, do you kind of see a, um, any trends in how they're developing? Are they are they growing due to certain um, variables, or do you see routes almost disappearing for these reasons? So. Let's again remember, the sector will never disappear because yeah. it is about employment generation. It will only disappear when the country gets sufficiently rich and there really is an overabundance of uh, better paying jobs. And you don't even have that in New York where you still have dollar vans until today. So it will always exist and it's very dynamic. It will always react to the normal needs. People wanting to cross the Brooklyn Bridge and pay a third of the lowest MTA fare. That's the informal system. So it will react. But my main worry right now is what about the workers in the system? Yeah. Because in the end, this is a really day by day, it's cutthroat business and very little to zero social protection. And at the same time, you're talking about easily 10% of the workforce of the city, not just here, but all over Africa. So the strand of work that we are pursuing, not just locally, but also in our projects in Kampala or in Rwanda, is a professionalization of the sector. This sector can grow to become more professional, maybe formal, but not necessarily, in how it functions. This includes expanding uh, rights to the uh, work, transport workers, be them drivers or callers or people who work at the terminals, or, or, or. It's things like uh, insurance, social insurance, health insurance, life insurance. It's things like training. It's things like migrating from a completely informal system to a schedule-based system with changing but fic like fixed routes that change periodically because this is just so much more efficient. It's yeah. moving from a really negative equilibrium to a much more positive equilibrium. And it's also about, let's get rid of this 100% laissez-faire to a semi-regulated system, a semi-formal regulated system. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, the opportunity I see because the shock of the pandemic may be so painful now, we really start to have this need and urgency to proceed with this professionalization track. And... To me, the interesting dynamic is five, ten years from now is electrification. Because there will be a point when an electric minivan will be just as capable as a petrol-driven one, yeah. but cheaper. And people follow incentives, you know, the moment it's there, the moment it functions, its problems are under control, it will skyrocket. Like this sector is built on the back of Japanese vans that started flooding the market in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And that's this technology dimension is one I also like to keep an eye on. Hey, me, can I ask a question? Uh, is is Uber uh, 
just talking about regulation. When I was there, like six months ago, Uber was there. There were billboards for it in the city. You could call one, and it was definitely illegal. What's the situation <laughs> with it now? Uh, the letter or the law of the spirit? That's always the big question. Because <laughs> like we, so, we were we were riding in one, and our driver got pulled over and got a ticket. Or had to pay a bribe, one or the other, you know. Yeah, but that's the dichotomy that informal transport faces everywhere, not just here. Before I jump into Uber, let's go back to the microvans for a moment. Officially, they may take passengers from a terminal to a terminus. You are never allowed to get on or off in the middle of the road. And this means that them functioning as public buses is essentially illegal. But it's breaking another law. The, uh, it's breaking the uh, traffic uh, law, not the public transport law. And this kind of legal dichotomy, legal schizophrenia, exists everywhere. The sectors are badly regulated. And the same applies to Uber. Because in Egypt, the law says no car without a taxi medallion is allowed to pick up passengers uh, mid-street. And yet you have Uber and they're very big and they're very successful. Um, the thing is in Egypt that we just passed a ride hailing law like a year and a half ago. And the executive implementation of the law just happened like last month or so. So ever since it's been operating in a relatively gray area. And this legal schizophrenia to me is also part of... Um, Part of the professionalization of the sector, the burden isn't only on the transport workers or the sector itself, it's also on the public authorities regulating and in charge of the sector. Because when you have this conflicting incentives, you get informality as a reaction. Mm. When you correct these conflicting incentives, most of the workers in the sector want to be professionalized. They want to have more formal uh, modes to act within because for them it provides them with job security. There's this fantastic piece of research that uh, has been done and published in Nairobi, currently ongoing in Uganda, by a partner of ours based in Manchester. And he identified that a full quarter of the earnings of the informal sector in Nairobi uh, goes to pay, pay for uh, corruption, basically. Cost of business, if you want to use that terminology. And it's pity corruption that stems out of no matter what you do, there's always a law you're breaking hmm. because the laws are intertwined. You know, they're, they're schizophrenic. Yeah. You got to look. I mean, someone's got to make money, right? I mean, how can, how can you expect these politicians to just not make money? They, they have a house to feed and, you know, kids to clothe. I mean, I mean have, have we thought about them at all in this calculation? <laughs> it's a really interesting uh, like dilemma wherever you encounter it one of the most powerful sentences that I heard about informal transport was from South Africa and it was that this sector is the only one that's fully black owned and operated hmm. so if you look at for instance uh, retail or banking or telecommunications 
a lot of these sectors in South Africa are now black operated, like management and the board are dominated by people of the black community. But ownership is still with the remnants of the white apartheid uh, community. Mm -hmm. And the informal transport sector is the only one that's fully black owned and operated. And this is really key to understand because when we talk about politicians and uh, how they make their ownership, actually, we're talking about the lower rank politicians. We're talking about the mass, you know, we're talking about the equivalent of Tammany Hall, not the leadership. And mm -hmm. this is what makes it so pervasive. Uh, a very common thread all over Africa is that you have a lot of police officers owning a van and renting it out on a day-by-day -day basis. So suddenly you have maybe 20% of the sector that is, has this inherent conflict of interest of who owns it and who regulates it. Mm. And it goes back point. to the idea of this uh, small man's uh, capitalist. Like, as a sector, it's also kind of uh, an equalizer, you know? It's an easy way to enter the market economy. Yeah, that's been my experience with friends in Southern Africa is that anybody who is kind of like middle class, the first business that they start is taxi cabs. They buy taxi cabs, they get a friend to drive it, and then they take a cut of the profit. That seems to be the first business that people get into. From, a, from like a larger city planning perspective, do you think the the route taxis, like the minivans are talking about, like the Mercedes Sprinters or whatever that that picks up and drops off sort of like a long, uh, you know, a somewhat set route, it adapts over time. Uh, like we have those here in Tbilisi and it's like they phased them in like a decade ago and now there's talk of like phasing them out because like, you know, they're a nuisance sort of and like we should just do buses and the metro and taxis and cars. Like do we need, do we need this thing as just like yet another um, form of transport, why can't we get these more buses? And it's really a question of the unemployed uh, unemployment rate in Tbilisi. Yeah, we are. It's really I, about yeah. balancing the stakeholders, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. one of the main uh, drivers of uh, in Africa was, let's try to build BRT, bus rapid transit, like in Bogota. And this is really like the poor man's metro. It's like half to maybe two thirds of the capacity of a subway for 10% of the cost and built and up and running in maybe two, three years. It functions. But the problem is if you arrive with this BRT, then what happens with the people previously working in the sector? And normally the BRT will use around 10 or 20% of the workforce. And even if the jobs are higher quality jobs, that's still a massive jo uh, loss of employment that needs to be managed. And this is an, a really important stakeholder. And the other co side of the coin is building a formal system that can match the capacity of the paratransit sector of the informal system is such a massive undertaking that uh, I think we're underestimating it a little bit. Even in Bogota, even in the most successful examples of BRT worldwide, you still have the informal system not just surviving, but often outcompeting the formal sector. Mm -hmm. A big bus looks nice, has a more comfortable seat. Trust me, I'll use it every day. 
But if the other services takes half the time and costs the same or maybe less, and I'm friends with the driver, I think the value proposition is pretty clear. And getting this value proposition to work in favor of the big buses has been tricky. Let's take a step back into like American history or European history. And you had the same immense public sector dynamism, an informal sector per se, in New York, when you had the uh, horse carriages back in the early 20th or late 19th century. And then you started to have like uh, multiple competing railways with the most advanced technology of the day. The difference is back then the most advanced technology was a railway. Today it's a Sprinter or a Toyota Hyatt van. The technology has become decentralized. And this is why you can have tens of thousands of market entrants and not just three or four. But the results are the same. New York subway network is not logical from a public transport perspective because routes were competing, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Do you think electric bikes are the future? Do you think that's the move? I think they will be part of the future. The future is always going to be a mix. The subway or the metro is not going anywhere until the entire city goes, and I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, Buses will always uh, stay there uh, and will still have a big role to play. I see a role for private car. Uh, We're talking about senior citizens. We're talking about people with special abilities. Every one of us has to move between apartments at some point, and you don't want to move between apartments on the subway. (laughs) But commuting, going to university, like these repetitive trips, uh, I really think that active travel will have a much bigger role over in, in these kind of trips. And for me, it's always a question of percentages and different modes. It's always a question of uh, how much can we shift? Remember, Cairo is a city that's growing by 1 million new citizens every year. We're going to be 30 million in 10 years. And when you have this level of growth, will all of these 10 million new citizens buy cars? Or will half of them buy cars? Or will maybe 10% of them buy cars? 40% of them build their life around electric bikes and 50% build their life around public transport. That's the future that we really want to work towards. Mm-hmm. I like that. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask what? Uh, oh, sorry. Were you going to say something? Yeah, no, I. Um, it's, it's interesting because at the same time, um, It'll be useful to watch how the how informal routes still matter, because I just I I think about the example of Russia when we discuss this and Corey, of course, this is similar to Georgia with the Marshutsky, and it's definitely certain classes and certain generations and certain regions of cities that are using these, and I think that it speaks to the future. Of, of those regions and um, of those groups of people. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I use them exclusively during T-Score. When I was in T-Score, I used the Marshuka, which, which is just a minivan that goes to different cities and towns. That's, that, that was the only way I was able to leave of my village, go to a town or go anywhere. And uh, they were a godsend because they were 
extremely cheap. They yep. were relatively efficient in that, like, you could take one from your town to the city to, like, the main regional center, and from the main regional center, you could probably go anywhere. And... But they were, but but they were, they were madness, though, right? Because they're completely oh, yeah. and you know, you might be out there with like a ghost or something like that. That, but they they do take you to the to reaches of cities and regions that you would otherwise not be able to make it to. Yeah, unless you had a private car, unless you had a private yeah, car, yeah, or, or a mountain bike or something like that. <laughs> It's very true. And and I want to take this idea of a madness one step further, because when talking about transportation, all of us have like this natural tendency to think about it from the point of view of us, the users. But in our work, we also look at a lot about the point of view of the transport workers, the people who are actually in the sector. And uh, we talked earlier about this funny example of people just lighting a joint to relax midway. But the amount of inefficiency that they are exposed to uh, is such so massive that it's almost an opportunity in its own. Like in our research, we often find out that uh, drivers of these informal systems work like 13, 14 hour days. And you don't want to be with somebody riding a car for 13, 14 hours straight. And they don't. Because mm. out of these 13, 14 hour days, they maybe spend two or three years, uh, two or three uh, hours driving. And the rest of the time, they are in the terminal waiting for their turn at the front of the queue to be able to start picking up passengers. And this is such just a, such a massive inefficiency because the end result is somebody who's more tired than need be, less time mm -hmm. uh, on their own personal development or on their family life than need be. And at the same time, uh, the, the, the negative outcomes for us as users and it's really because of this uh, market failure, if you want to use that terminology. It's really because of a lack of coordination, of a lack of organization. And is that something that you think can be, that a gap can be uh, bridged? Or do you think that, that that inefficiency is impossible to fix? I think it can be bridged, and we are seeing examples of this. But it does require uh, public sector intervention. Um, like... Let's go to South Africa, for instance. There was a fantastic project, and it's well documented by partners of ours. And they managed to take like a terminal and turn the system from the completely informal system that was there before to a scheduled system. Now you ride every 10 minutes with passengers or in the car or without. You're working on eight-hour shifts, and you get paid. And this was associated with a small one-time public subsidy like the carrot for the transport workers to enter this new system is uh, you work less you make the same money oh and you get some financing for a new car so it's a one-time subsidy mm. and this really helped to move from this negative equilibrium to a more positive and potentially hopefully uh, sustainable and long-term equilibrium and this is really what we believe in like, imagine if you can scale this experiment up and you can really build this regulatory organizational capacity up, put this, like, interventions, these one-time interventions, instead of investing in heavy infrastructure such as subways, and then result with a system that really works better for everybody, workers and users alike. 
uh, this is the dream that we're working towards. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I would like to I would like to ask the way that you discuss public transportation um, and the the mix of modes reminds me in some ways of uh, energy mix and the way that a country would um, uh, use uh, various energy resources. Um, with this in mind. I was wondering, are there any public transportation systems that are closest to the ideal um, that you have in mind in terms of this mix of modes? Ah, that's a really interesting question. I am actually struggling to answer it from the top of my head. Um, Let's take a look at Cairo. Let's take a deep look at the city. Remember when I told you that the core of the city is extremely dense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in these dense neighborhoods, you had walking rates of up to 50%. That means that 50% of trips are people walking to it. This rate is high. This rate is like massively high by any standard. It's like higher than New York even. Mm-hmm. And it's really a result of the extreme density of the city. Problem is, when we moved to these new urban communities, the one that I'm actually calling you from right now, and the one that is the future of the country per the official narrative where all of the investments are going to, we recorded a walking rate of 6%, 6% of trips. Wow. You see this massive drop. Yeah, and yeah. This is really the big risk that we are seeing uh, all over Africa. You have like really high walking, sometimes even cycling rates, simply because of, let's be frank, because of poverty, but also because of density. And as the cities develop, as we become richer, but in a skewed way, more people opt to use uh, buy cars, the ones that can afford, and the ones that can't opt to live further out where they can have like access to affordable housing and rely on the public transport system, which is better than having a car, but still worse than active travel, cycling or walking, you know. Mm -hmm. And this is the shift that Europe and North America went through a long time ago. Look at Paris. I would say that Paris has an extremely healthy mix. It doesn't make sense to drive a car inside the city. Everybody, you can get anywhere with the subway. And a lot of people are choosing to cycle and walk instead. And cycling is getting promoted so powerfully, especially in the last three years under um, like the mayor, Anne Hidalgo, that it's, it's skyrocketing. But mm-hmm. the problem with Paris is I'm talking about the city of Paris with 3 million citizens. If you look at the metropolitan area with 14 million citizens, you'll start to see that it turns upside down. And the motorization rate is actually very high. And then it starts to look more like London. So the best healthy models that we are seeing are really in these dense urban cores that support walking and cycling. New York is a good example, but again, it's mostly Manhattan and a little bit in Brooklyn. Uh, Barcelona is a much better example, simply because the city is so much smaller. And of course, uh, the Asian countries, Singapore, Hong Kong. Mm. So it's very related to density. It's very related to building upwards. I think in the US, the question becomes less about the transit system in itself and more about the 
question of uh, zoning laws and housing and housing shortages. Yeah, yeah. So since we're on the topic of, we're talking about different cities, maybe it'd be fun to ask you, what's the golden example, in your opinion, of a great transportation system, a city with a great transportation system, and maybe what might be your favorite city in terms of how the transportation system is designed? Ah, I love that question. So, a good transportation system is a healthy transportation system. When you live in a car-dominated, like when, you know, you know how when you wear a Fitbit or your iPhone, it tells you the number of steps that you take day in day out. Mm-hmm. So, when you walk like three thousand steps, that's called a sedentary lifestyle. That's an unhealthy lifestyle. When you walk around ten thousand steps. That is an active lifestyle. That's a healthy one. It massively reduces the diabetes, the risk for diabetes, the risk for uh, heart, uh, cardiac issues, etc., etc. In mm. fact, there's been like conclusive research that showed it makes a difference of almost three, three years in life expectancy. Mm. And when you live in Paris, you're much more likely to be averaging 10,000 steps a day than when you're living in Houston or in Atlanta or in Los Angeles. It's basically the difference between a compact city and a big uh, sprawling city. And Los Angeles is now massively building like their subway system and their bus system. And they have this amazing uh, target, I think, for 80% of trips to take place without a a single private car. And that to me is like a really powerful success in terms of public policy. Why? Los Angeles is a car-dominated city and it will remain a car-dominated city for a long time to come. It's just the geography of the city. So what do you do? Do you, do you, do you turn it to ashes and start rebuilding it? Won't happen. <laughs> uh, we don't want this to happen. <laughs> <laughs> what they want to happen is we don't want anybody riding a car on their own. We realize people will be riding cars for a long future to come. We'll make the shift to less congestion, potentially more fuel efficient cars, potentially electric cars. But we want to make sure that a car is not empty. A car is maximized. Uber pool, ride sharing, that you take the car for short distances and then you access public transport, that you walk or cycle short distances, the last mile, and use public transport, etc. And it's always related to taking part of your trip uh, actively, walking or cycling. And this is where this shift from a sedentary to an active lifestyle comes in. And this is where the health component comes in. Like Mm -hmm. a healthy system is one in which you rely on multiple modes to get to where you want to, not just quickly, but also in a healthy way and be able to do that. That's uh, that, that's that's really <clears throat> what functions. So your number one is Paris, is what I'm hearing. Uh, I lived there. So that's why I'm so deeply familiar <laughs> with the city. <laughs> I also lived in New York, and I, lo- I love cycling in New York. And I would love to see it now with all of the new pop-up lanes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they have about 12 miles of them currently, and I'm hoping that they'll expand it. What's happening with the L train in New York, by the way? I think it's fixed, actually. So for those uninitiated, the L train, they they uh, 
initially they were going to shut it down and it would go it was going to affect a significant amount of daily subway riders and at the last second some european engineering firm came up with some way that they could fix the, the repairs they needed to fix without shutting it down so they turned it into just minimized service and uh, it was awful i took it a few times during the process it was so crowded and terrible but I think because of everything that's going on, I think they were able to fix it early because ridership went down so so much because of the the pandemic. And I think it might be fixed and fully open now, or it's very close to being so. Like the city is dependent, you know, like urban existence and public transport are really codependent. You can't have a city without uh, the other side. And this is why, to me, it's really difficult to prefer the system of a city over the one over another, because you have like these differences in geographies. One of the biggest challenges that we will face here in Egypt, for instance, is if you want to promote walking and cycling so much, what are we going to do about uh, heat? It gets hot in summer and gets really sunny. And we need to really engage with these challenges and find a local solution. And this is why the good system is like a healthy system in which you don't get sick, you moving around, and you actually promote your well-being moving around. Mm. And cars don't do that. Have you ever been stuck in traffic before? (laughs) (laughs) Very good point. (laughs) Okay, I like that answer. I was expecting you to say this city is the best in the world, but your answer is a very good diplomatic answer of a healthy transportation system for the user's body and for their mental well-being. That's a safe answer. (laughs) Well, I guess I learned something from FIFA after all. (laughs) (laughs) Corey and Sarah, do you have any, a a favorite public transport system in the world? Moscow, hands down. Why? (laughs) The, The Metro is just beautiful. It like so not only is it beautiful, it also runs trains during rush hour every minute and a half. I saw I saw a great meme yesterday or the day before, and it was just like two parallel pictures. One of a like just like standard like four-leaf clover like interchange of the highway in America, and one of the just like a, just a you know basically a stock photo of a, of a terminal station in the Moscow subway. And it just said like, and for anyone who doesn't know, like the Moscow subway station has some extremely opulent, beautiful, like sort of classical architecture in the, inside the subway stations. And they're like palaces to the working man and woman going to work. And, uh, and it just said like underneath it, the pictures, it was like, you know, how you go to work under capitalism and how you go to work under socialism. <laughs> uh, you know comparisons, which yeah, you gotta love. It. I don't know. I don't know if I have a favorite. I haven't been to the Moscow station. I just know its reputation. The Moscow subway. Um, I like. You know what I love? I love in Istanbul that the ferries that crisscross the Bosphorus and stuff like that are the same as uh, like a subway ride or a whatever, like a bus ride. So you know, for for a buck, you can just ride around on these ferries all day long. Uh, and they have they have a little like uh, you know canteen on them, so you can get you know like tea and snacks, and you can just like 
get the best views of the city of Istanbul from the public transport. Mm. Yeah, I do. I do have to give a shout out to the one subway line in Yekaterinburg, Russia. Um, it's amazing. the The voice that announces the stations is like this gravelly uh, male voice that is just very distinctive. And they only have the one line. They were going to have three lines, I believe, in the city, but was never completed. So I have to give a shout out to to the one that I uh, I used most probably. <laughs> Very nice. I think uh, one of my most formative experiences ever was going to a football or like a soccer match in Holland. Mm. Because I want you to imagine like I was in Den Haag, and then the local team won. And then you have like 50,000 super happy, super cheerful Dutch people getting out at the same time, taking out 50,000 bicycles and <laughs> riding them at the same time to go home. And this was just such a massive like uh, mental stimulation because I was riding there with my friend. And then next to us, we had like a family of five with little five-year-olds riding in the back. And then we had like seniors and you had a person with disability pushing their wheelchair and it was just like it looked like a it was just like a festival you know <laughs> and then once you get outside of the mass of people riding and you enter like the portion of the cycling highway that will take you wherever you're going and then you get back into traffic rules and uh, that's people shouting at you because you took a wrong turn <laughs> um, no, there, there's something beautiful about that. <laughs> it is. That's the most admirable transport system that I've seen is also in the Netherlands and all the biking. It's so amazing that they were able to set that up. At, I don't know the history of it or how that came to be, but that's amazing that they were able to do that. They're efficient. They were <laughs> early adopters of the automobile like mm. early, early adopters in the 60s and in the 70s. And they learned pretty early on in the 70s because they have built so much car infrastructure, how bad it can get. And mm. that's why they started the shift uh, in the late 70s, which is the shift that France is doing like now or Germany is doing now. Uh, yeah. So they're just, they, they screwed up early, so they started fixing early. That's the reason. <laughs> so maybe they're our future, which would be a good thing. Yeah. I'm sorry? Maybe they're the future that we can look forward to. It would be a good thing. I hope so. I hope <laughs> so. Uh, always remember two facts. Um, look at advertisements for bicycles from 1910 or the 1920s. And the bicycle back then was like a car today. It was like the big General Motors, like firm rally going to Madison Avenue to hire the most expensive advertisers to sell the lifestyle product per se. Mm -hmm. If you look in Europe, the cycling lobby literally lobbied for like cycling highways connecting cities, which are the routes that go through forests today and are like the nice hiking trails. Mm -hmm. This was made by the cycling lobby in the <laughs> late 20th and uh, 19th century. And this concept of there is a new technology First, it was bicycles, then it was cars. And because of this new technology, we need to build massive infrastructure 
first it was like these uh, high, like these cycling lanes through forests, and then it became the interstate highway system in the U.S. It happens, you know. That's why it's really not far from me to imagine what if we put all of the national resources into active travel today. It happened twice before.